You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the Moe Gamer podcast. I'm Pete Davison from moegamer.net and as always I'm joined by Chris Kasky from Mr. Gilda Pixels. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing well, Pete. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Um, enjoying uh, the entry to September, also known as the month of a thousand games. Yeah, um, um, <laughs> I have acquired many a game in just the past two weeks. I'm sitting here right now, sipping on cold brew and staring longingly at my copy of Astral Chain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this uh, is so just to just to summarize for. For, for people who uh, are, are catching up on what is becoming available or available to order at the very least. This month we have, uh, or sort of from the end of August anyway, uh, we have Astral Chain, we have Demon X Machina, we have Crystar, we have uh, River City Girls and Gunvolt becoming available to order from Limited Run Games. We have AI The Somnium Files from Spike Chunsoft. We have... Uh, Zelda and um, uh, something else from Nintendo are out this month as well, aren't they? Someone reminded me the other day. Like I listed all these obscure stuff and someone else went, oh, there's also these really well-known things coming yeah. out as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> plus, uh, plus, like, I'm itching to get pre-orders in for, like, Destiny Connect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is in, yeah. The, is in the autumn. Um, the, the Trails of Cold Steel 3 drops in November, so, like, I want to make sure to pre-order that. Yeah, Nice America have had a couple of things up for pre-order as well, and they, again, it looks like some of those things that the limited edition version might be the only way to get them as well. I'm just looking at what those were. Yeah, remind yeah. myself. Yeah, so so Lamunana one and two. Um, oh, did they put the orders up for that? Um, they have in Europe. I don't know about North America, but uh, usually uh, a couple of days European. behind. That yeah. is a must-have. Yeah. What a beautiful package. Yeah. Yeah, I've still actually never played the Lamanala games, but I know they they are uh, very very good. So yeah, this might be uh, finally the time to to jump on board with them. So I've never looking... loved and hated something simultaneously that wasn't a person <laughs> as much as I do Lamanala. Yeah, and you get two of them in this package, and it's uh, this is another one of Nice America's sort of not that much more expensive than a standard retail release either. So yeah. it's fifty four ninety nine in Europe, and that gets you. Um, what does it get you? Two games uh, for Switch, Xbox One, or PS4. Hidden Treasures, The Tomb of La Mulana, which I think is an art book. Uh, a two-disc soundtrack, a jigsaw puzzle, and a collector's box. The music in these games is hot fire. It is The yeah. music is so good. Like, I, I know I say that, like, and like, so good is such like a lame description, but like, <laughs> it's cool because it's very much just like Japanese, like FM synth kind of feeling but like kind of mixed with that like high adventure like indiana jones style like oh sweet like it's That's just sweet. very very motivational and yeah. yeah these games are really special <laughs> 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 like i said it's a tremendous amount of love hate with these but still worth owning yeah yeah absolutely and sort of having them both in one packaged release like this is going to be really nice that's due out in early 2020 but you can pre-order it now from uh nice america so keep an eye out for that all right um so we've uh, already kind of started on the news already but that's going to be our first segment as usual then we'll follow that with what we've been talking uh, what we've been playing recently 
and then we will talk about that uh, and then finally our third segment today uh, after we got all academic and quite heavy last time we thought we'd have a fairly light-hearted discussion about sort of some favorite boss fights and things today so um yeah look forward to that in the third segment so just uh, uh, just a quick update to last week's episode in preparation mm-hmm. for this week's episode i watched a great deal of secret of mana footage and realized that secret of mana alone completely invalidates the entire theory that i put out in my last in the last episode <laughs> Because I forgot about Secret of Mana pausing to let you make menu choices during the magic. Oh, no. So, oh. <laughs> so it totally invalidates most of the distinctions I made in the last episode. <laughs> that is why we were sh- we made sure to put in the disclaimer that it was an ever-evolving theory. <laughs> or is that a genre all of its own? Hmm? Secret of Mana is its own special thing. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, you, you could make an argument that there's that also goes alongside stuff like Baldur's Gate, which had its active pause system as well, didn't it? As well, but it was mm. mostly real time. Other than that, but that wasn't sort of press a button to attack. So, anyway, that's a discussion for another day. Mm. Um, let's um, let's talk about news. So, um, kicking off with Shovel Knight. Uh, tell me more about Shovel Knight because this is uh, something that I have so far resisted checking out, but I know you're big into it. Just in general, you've yeah, resisted. generally. So yeah, Shovel Knight is. Um uh, kind of a franchise that originally was kickstarted, and it's the the name of the company is Yacht Club Games, and they are composed largely of people with ties to WayForward, so they kind of continue mm-hmm. WayForward's kind of emphasis on old school 2D kind of stuff. The original Shovel Knight was an 8-bit title, very much trying to kind of emulate and pay tribute to specifically the NES. Um, they worked very hard to stay to kind of NES restrictions in terms of color mm-hmm. and, and sprite restrictions um, with with a lot of modern flourishes as well. But, it, you know, it wasn't perfect, but the idea was to make it feel like a modern NES game. Um, yeah, it was it was kind of our um, what one of the earlier ones to do what we described as uh, modern retro, wasn't it? Um, yeah, sort of incorporating that eight bit aesthetic, but doing stuff that wouldn't have actually been possible to do on those old platforms. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, there's a couple new pieces of news surrounding Shovel Knight in that um, we finally have a release window for the kind of fully complete physical edition, which is going to have the original Shovel Knight game as well as all the expansions pressed on a physical mm-hmm. disc. Um, yep. And another really interesting piece of news is that they have paired up with Nitrome, which is another indie developer well known for their really excellent pixel work. Um, most recently, I think they've come into the picture due to uh, a game called Bomb Chicken, Oh yeah, which yep. uh, which limited run did a pressing of a little while ago, and it's mm-hmm. qu- quite good. Um, so they are making another Shovel Knight game called Shovel Knight Dig, um, right. which has a kind of specific emphasis on like the shovel work as like right. p- as like part of navigating around the backgrounds, um, like like mm-hmm. dig- like digging through like big parts of the stage that are kind of like covered in dirt which wasn't really part of shovel the original shovel knight it had a bit of a mega man feel to it um yeah it was a bit of mega man and a bit of bit of ducktales wasn't it yeah exactly understand yeah and this new game looks to be taking quite a bit of what kind of defined the original shovel knight but then melding it with kind of um, i don't know if you ever played any of the steam world dig games where you actually have to like no, chip no, yeah. chip chip your way through 
these environments and it's kind of adding mm-hmm. a bit of that so um they've been very careful to point out that this is a spin-off game you know this isn't like a sequel it's yeah. just it's just kind of them allowing someone else essentially to make a game within the shovel knight property yeah um which is really really cool mm-hmm. um and once again Nit- nitrome's specific approach to pixel art is just really pleasant so just very excited to see this the, the footage is beautiful yeah it sounds pretty cool i mean um to, to clarify, the reason I've I've sort of resisted Shovel Knight up until this point is not because I know I won't like it, because I, I know I will like it, but I've also been very aware that they've been continuing developing it and adding to it and putting expansions and stuff on it. So I might actually finally bite on this when this sort of complete edition comes out. Yes. So, uh, and give it a go. So I, I can sort of have the complete experience right away. But uh, yeah, so yeah, good news for, for Shovel Knight fans. Shovel Knight has been like a real success story of the indie scene, hasn't it? It's sort of oh, yeah. really sort of exploded into kind of mainstream awareness and all sorts of things. So yeah, good on them. Good on them for doing something cool with that. I mean, it's really quite amazing to see how much Shovel Knight's blown up. I mean, how many indie games do you think of that have Amiibos? Yeah, no, exactly. And like, so exactly. there's an Amiibo of Shovel Knight and there's a three-pack of three of the villains coming out. Yeah. Um... Which is really interesting. It's like, you know, like, we've been, like, screaming that we want Shantae Amiibos for how long, and, like, Shovel (laughs) Shovel Knight's cracked the code. Like, those exist, which is really cool. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. All right, cool. Moving on. Uh, So, the next story you've got on the list is um, Warriors Orochi 4 Ultimate has been confirmed for PS4 and Switch uh, this December and um, is coming to PC in February 2020. Uh, so it's coming to consoles in Japan in December, I should say. Uh, and then a worldwide release, including a PC version, is coming in 2020. Um, so this is going to uh, incorporate all the base content from uh, Warriors Orochi 4 that came out, is it last year or this year? I can't remember. I think it was um, this year, which I was really surprised because it's it's coming really fast. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's on the way. Uh, so it incorporates all that, any DLC that this, that was released. They've also said that they're not going to really do any more DLC for Ultimate as well. So if you've been holding off Warriors Orochi 4, um, waiting for kind of a complete edition, it sounds like this is going to be it. There might mm. be some cosmetic bits and pieces, but other than that, they're not going to do any like substantial story content or new characters or anything for it. So Yeah, I mean, there um, is going to be new characters for Ultimate. They're just not going to yes, come. They're just right. going to come later. Yes. Because yes. the yes. new girl looks really cool. Yes. Um, they're bringing in sort of a few um, classics from older Koei Tecmo and Omega Force games. Something. They did this, um, isn't there Joan of Arc from Bladestorm, I think, is it? Yes, yep, Joan of Arc. Um, who else is there? There's a new girl who's a, based on Greek mythology, and I don't remember her name, but her whole deal is that she's fighting with a Hecaton chair, which is yeah. which is uh, like the multi-armed giant from like mythology that um, was actually, if you remember in FF13, that was Vanille's summon was Hecaton chair, yeah. the giant, which is like a hundred arms. So that's really yeah. cool. I'm really interested to see how that's going to factor into like the Muso gameplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should be really cool. Yes. So um, that is that is on the way. Um, moving on, uh, we've got a Samurai Showdown Neo Geo collection coming for release this winter, um, which should be cool. And uh, I think they said that 
this is going to be including um, the Neo Geo Pocket game. I think it was like as either a pre-order bonus or like an uh, that was that you, you get early on. That was for the Switch version of the new Samurai Showdown. Oh, was it? I yeah, separate it. Yeah. separate thing, but also really freaking cool. So like, yeah, yeah. with the Switch version of the the new Samurai Showdown, you get the Neo Geo one one of the Pocket Samurai Showdowns. But yeah, I'm just super excited for this um, this Neo Geo collection because to have, yeah. but I think it's six. I think it's one through five plus the updated version of five. Yeah, like I want these more than I want the new Samurai Showdown. Like, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. So that that should be cool. I, again, this is not a series I, I know a lot about, so this will presumably be a good way to um, sort of get to get to know it a bit better um, it is deliciously inaccessible <laughs> good good <laughs> samurai showdown makes zero sense to me uh but it's okay because it's beautiful and the character design is out of this world yeah all right um and this is um worth noting this is going to be handled by digital eclipse as well uh who did the snk 40th anniversary collection so and they're also very good at emulation so yeah, this should be a good collection that runs really well on pretty much every platform it comes to. So, good stuff. Uh, right, continuing on, uh, also on the retro re-releases front, uh, it looks like uh, we're getting a Mega Man Zero ZX ZX Legacy Collection. Um, so, continuing on with um, sort of Capcom's trend of re-releasing its old games in packages, we, we're getting the, the Mega Man Zero games. Which are, remind me, these are the handheld ones, aren't they? Is that that's, right? that's correct. So Mega Man Zero, 1 through 4 were originally on the Game Boy Advance. Mm -hmm. um, I often forget that there's four of those. Um, then they were also re-released as a collection that you could get on the DS. And, yeah. then, and then ZX and ZX Advent were also on the DS. Um, yes. So this is really cool because if you buy this... And then theoretically, you get all the Gunvolt stuff. You've got a massive collection of like some of Intercreate's greatest works on the Switch. Yeah. Yes. Like this is tremendous. Yeah. And the ability to play um, ZX and ZX Advent on a TV is going to be amazing. Because yes, definitely. That's never been possible. Like it was always possible technically, technically to play Zero One through Four on a TV if you had the Game Boy Player for the Game Boy mm -hmm. Advance, but. This will be the first time that, like, without a weird workaround, these games will be playable on a big screen with a proper controller. Which is, oh, I've always struggled with these games because uh, I'm just not great with action games on a handheld. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I, I know the feeling. It's, I mean, a combination of factors uh, a lot of the time, isn't it? Like, sort of cramped screen space and things being a bit small and difficult to pass and that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, I tend to have a bit more success on. Um, either tv-based stuff or, or handhelds that have got a slightly bigger screen so yeah this will be good i'm i'm curious to check these out sort of having really kind of got to know intercreates over the course of the last two or three years or so i'm i'm very interested in seeing some of their older stuff and i know the um yeah the the Mega Man stuff that they've contributed to is very well regarded and beautiful to look at as well so yeah yeah these are special games and, yeah. and it's and it's you're getting six games yeah, in this collection, it's massive. Yes, yeah. So that's that's looking good. All right, uh, continuing on. Um, really struggling with these links we've posted. None of they're all from Silicon Era, so none of them are working. Yeah, but um, everything you need to know is in the title, <laughs> yeah. right? So like, yeah, yeah, pretty much. 
Yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, uh, in September, in fact, September the 5th, that's very soon, isn't it? So, Moero Crystal H is coming to uh, Nintendo Switch. Uh, This originally came out on Vita in 2015, um, but this this is one of Compile Hearts ones that never had an English version. Um, Are they doing an English version of this one? That's the one detail I can't seem to find. Yeah, I'm not sure, but, I mean... It would follow suit, right? <laughs> that, that there'd be an Asian, at least an Asian English language. Well, yeah. The other, th- the other thing to bear in mind is that they they did actually officially release Moera Chronicle um, in English on Switch as a digital only title, yes. But they they did release that officially in English on Switch in Europe and America. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, assuming they have done an English translation of that, which which they didn't do for the original Vita release, it was just a Chinese one for the Asian release. Um, yeah, we we may well see this as well, um, but at the minute it's quite hard to check whether that's going to happen or not. Uh, so let's move on. All right, uh, continuing on the ROM cassette collection series. Um, I did read something about this the other day, but I completely forgotten what it was. This was this gets you hooked up with Rodland, my brother. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. So this is this is sort of like some re-releases of um, various games that originally released on like the Famicom and stuff, wasn't it? So. And they're bundling them together. So there's stuff like stuff like Rodland, old uh, Jalico releases, that kind of thing. Um, let's see what else is going on. So the ROM cassette collection. So this is, this is from City Connection, who who uh, own the rights to most of um, Jalico's stuff now. Yeah. Um, so what we what have we got? So collections include uh, Exerion, Biosinchi, Dan, Increaser, Trono, Tatakai. Not heard of that one. Uh, Argus. Rodland, Yokai Club, uh, the unreleased Famicom version of Soldam. Uh, so Soldam came out recently on, relatively recently, mm. on Switch. That's the Rodland spin-off puzzle game. Uh, there's very little to do with Rodland aside from having the same characters in it. Um, and then there's going to be a third collection that includes the Wing of Medulla, Raf uh, World, <laughs> uh, Battle Formula, also known as Super Spy Hunter, uh, Hibiriki, and other titles, apparently. This is um, huge for Hibiriki. Yeah. Uh, Hibarike is amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was localized as Euphoria, but only in PAL territories. Oh, okay. Um, and it's one of those games that is just like heavily sought after and like super well regarded in like terms of like late era NES titles. Right. Um, it's a beautiful, like slightly op- like almost like a proto open ended platformer. It's got like big stages and like multiple characters yeah, okay. with different abilities you can flip between. Um yeah. really, really cool. Really cool game and the opportunity to get a hold of this on modern consoles is pretty exciting. Oh, that's interesting. It, it did okay. get a release on the Wii Virtual Console. Right. As a digital only. Okay. But uh it's cool. It's a really neat game. Uh, Sunsoft yeah. and and success working together made oh, wow. this yeah, series. That's, that's a dream team. Yeah. All right. Um, so there aren't release dates or anything for that just yet, but they are they are on the way. And it looks like there's going to be three separate collections of those. So keep an eye out for detail for those. I, I've not heard of most of these games, um, but as I, as I think we've we've talked about previously before this makes me more interested in them because it's sort of like the SNK collection. I hadn't heard of most of those games before, but I, I really enjoyed finding out more about SNK's roots and that sort of thing. It'll be really interesting to see some of uh, some of Jalico's stuff as well. Jalico isn't a developer I know very well generally. Um, so, yeah, this will be really cool to, 
to have a look at. Yeah, for some reason, Jalico. The only, whenever I think of Jalico, the only the first game that pops into mind is Punky Skunk for the PlayStation for the original PlayStation. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one that springs to mind for me is that they, they did some sort of racing game that I can't even remember the name of. Um, but yeah, there was like a sort of rally game that they did back in about the 16-bit era, I think. And that's that's always the first one that springs to mind for me. It's like, uh, although I love Rodland, it doesn't tend to spring to mind when I think of Jalico. I just think of Rodland. But um, yeah. But anyway. In, in retrospective, it was very like fashionable to make fun of Punky Skunk back in the PS1 days because everyone mm-hmm. had Polygon Fever, right? Nobody wanted 2D games. Yeah. But like now, if you look at footage of Punky Skunk, it's uh, yeah, it's yeah, really I goddamn know. pretty. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> like, gorgeous sprite work. Like yeah. All right, that's it for that's uh, that's all that's all I'll talk about Punky Skunk today. But... <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Punky Skunk centric episode coming down the line. Then. Yeah, right. Like, have all you right. have you played Punky Skunk? <laughs> All right, uh, continuing on, uh, Sega um, recently officially uh, announced that the Yakuza Remastered collection is, uh, well, it's already started coming to the West with the re-release of Yakuza 3 on PS4. 4 and 5 are coming throughout 2019 and 2020. I think the whole lot is going to be released by February of 2020. And February 2020 will also see a uh, fairly limited release of a fully packaged version of all of them. So Yakuza 3, 4 and 5 on disc for PS4, meaning that you'll be able to play nearly every Yakuza game on one platform. You won't be able to play Dead Souls and you won't be able to play the weird um, Sengoku era one but other than that all the mainline Yakuza ones you'll be able to play on PS4 which will be great and in the west at least this is already available for pre-order on Amazon Um, yes that's right I don't think it is in Europe just yet but it definitely is in North America because uh, I, I I looked the other day when Sega announced it and it, it didn't seem to be on Amazon Europe, but I, I haven't checked today, so it, it may well have showed up by the time that uh, time they hear this. This is an incredible so, package for sixty dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is like more game yeah. than you could play in a year if you're like a responsible yeah. adult. Like these games are massive. <laughs> well, the the interesting thing about the Akaza games is that they're they're the kind of games that they're they're not difficult to finish. In that the main stories tend to be pretty short, but the 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 wealth of additional content that comes in them that that is the reason to play Yakuza games. I mean, the stories are cool, the characters are cool, all that sort of thing, and the ongoing story of Kiria and Haruka and that sort of thing that that is really cool. But the sort of the main appeal for Yakuza for a lot of people out there is sort of the strange side stories, the incidental characters, um, the feeling of Kamurocho uh, evolving over time um sort of from the from the late 80s onwards to the present day and that sort of thing so so yeah there is there is so much there to explore and so yeah i, I would definitely be picking this up and uh at, at some point i'm gonna have to figure out how to tackle the yakuza series uh, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's 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 one that i want to write about but at this point there's it's the same problem i have with trails there's, there's just so much game now i'm just like well where do i start and where do i finish <laughs> So while we're on Yakuza, do we also want to talk about the fact that Yakuza 7 is fucking turn-based? Oh, please, let's... Yes. Yes. 
Oh, I, I love this. Yeah, this is, me this too. Is, this is this is great. So, so Yakuza Seven, uh, which is coming west as Yakuza Like a Dragon, which is actually a literal translation. Hilarious, because yeah, because um, yeah, that's Ryuga Gotoko is like a dragon. So this game is like like a dragon, like a dragon, which reminds yes. me of in the PS2 era, one of the Tenchu games was localized as Tenchu Wrath of Heaven. Yes, and, ten, and yes. Tenshu is Wrath of Heaven. <laughs> like, 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 like the game the title of the game was Wrath of Heaven, Wrath of Heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so this is this is sounding interesting. So, um, I must confess, at the time of recording, I haven't actually got around to watching the trailer yet because it's quite a long one. But um, from what I understand, part of the thinking behind this is that the the main character likes Dragon Quest, and so he fights in turn based because he likes Dragon Quest. They've actually tied it to like a plot thing and like a character thing. It, it it sounds like it. They certainly mentioned Dragon Quest in it, so yeah, That's I think awesome. it, it it does sound like it's relevant. So um, there are a few words from the chief producer Masayoshi Yoko, Yokoyama here. Um, so the the new system is called the Live Command RPG Battle, um, which means that the fight is constantly in motion. Um, so what this means is that characters move in real time, um, but um, you sort of you sort of uh, get issue commands as you're going through so it's still got sort of things like the physics of uh, the objects so you can sort of still slam people into things and stuff like that but there there is like a turn-based element to it as well so turn order is determined by character stats um but it also takes into account things like uh, positioning on enemies um your distance from enemies any objects that you got nearby you and that sort of thing so yeah this is this is going to be a really interesting system and um one of the funniest things about it is that this actually started as an april fool's joke that everyone thought was just an april fool's joke um but no it's real <laughs> so yeah yak is the seven is going to be quite different from the previous ones which has already got a few people going hmm, i'm not sure i like this but well, i also saw well, someone on Twitter. Them, got six games to play exactly like, let's do I also, something new. i also yeah, I also saw someone on Twitter the other day referring to Yakuza as a, quote, classic brawler series, and I just wanted to scream. It's like, no, that is not what Yakuza is. Please stop doing that. Um, but anyway, yes, Yakuza 7 is on the way, and it looks uh, very different. So yeah, I'm, I'm all for them trying something a bit, a bit different, particularly if they've got a new protagonist or something. It really makes sense for them to sort of go in a different direction and experiment a bit with the series, particularly as... Yeah, exactly. So that's cool um moving on um there was a trailer posted by p cube the other day from uh, a game that i i hadn't really noticed before but um it looks very cool so uh it's a game called dusk diver uh which is set in taipei uh and it's an action rpg with sort of muso style fights they call it uh, and an anime style and this is coming out on pc on october 24th um switch and ps4 on october 25th uh, in Europe and October 29th for North America um, and this this looks like a really cool sort of stylish game so there's a kind of two worlds element to it where there's uh, sort of the the real world so you're sort of wandering around this neon psych city and then there's a sort of parallel world that you go into as well where everything is sort of um, sort of dark but with really bright highlights so it's almost a sort of cyberpunk look about it um, so I don't know a ton of details about the plot, but it, it certainly looks really cool. So I, um, I hadn't really heard of this before, but I'm very interested in it now, having seen the trailer. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I have I had heard of it just uh, from following its development a little bit because it's yeah. I think the game's actually de- developed in Taiwan. 
yes, too. Right. Like, it's yeah. not you know, it's not just like Taiwan themes. It's like it's really cool to me. I know we've talked many times in this on our show here about how much I love to track development from other countries. Yeah, and, and 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 see kind of how they feel a little different. Yeah. So it, it, I've never, you know, I've never played a game from Taiwan before. So this is a really cool opportunity to experience development from a different perspective. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, uh, moving on. Other uh, other announcements that we got. Uh, Hatsune Miku is back uh, next year. I don't think we got a specific date yes uh, yet, but uh, it is coming to Switch in 2020. Uh, and the game is going to be called Hatsune Miku Project Diva Mega Mix. Um, it's going to have over a hundred songs in it, apparently. Um, looking at um, the trailer, it seems to include both favourite songs from the last ten years and some new songs as well. So, um, yeah, if if you've been looking for some uh, Project Diva action, this Switch version is going to be sort of the definitive way to experience it. Just by the trailer as well, it's going to be running at 60 frames a second, which will look lovely. Uh, and also the big advantage of the Switch version is that it plays in handheld mode. And I, I don't know about other people, how other people feel about this, but um, I've always felt that um, these games in particular feel really good in handheld mode because it sort of gives you... Um, a feeling of kind of direct connection to the music like you're actually playing an instrument and that's something that i always feel you kind of lose slightly if you're playing a controller that is connected to a tv so i, I mean i don't know if that means anything to you but as a musician that's how i've always felt about the yeah, no. um, rhythm games in general yeah, it's I've like it's, it's, it's like that's why i prefer to play um San Rancago or bon appetit on vita to pc despite the pc version being technically better i still prefer the vita version just because it feels better to play yeah I mean, um this, the, the best the, experience i've ever had with hudson amiku is was with the, the the 3ds one the chibi 3ds one yes yeah 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 yeah, that looks cool. Um, new to this Switch mode, there's a, uh, a Joy-Con-based mode where rather than tapping buttons, you're, you're tilting the Joy-Cons to sort of overlap icons that are coming down the screen. That'll so this looks well. like a yeah, this looks like a sort of um, fairly newbie-friendly mode because judging by the trailer, it seems to sort of have a very wide margin for error on that, which is good for anything motion control-based. So if you want to enjoy a Hatsune Miku game but you've always found sort of tapping out the note charts a little bit challenging because they are challenging games to, to be clear these are some of the the most challenging rhythm games on the market I reckon at the minute or on, on sort of the, the the kind of vaguely mainstream market anyway but um, yeah this looks like a, a good way of getting new people into the series and of course there's all the usual sort of dress up and interacting with Miku and her friends and that sort of thing so yeah this should be great I will be all over this when it comes out um yeah so that's coming to the west they've already confirmed it's coming west uh, in 2020 um right and i think that's about it isn't it yeah Unless just there's anything else you want to talk about just a just an excited shout out that uh they've announced for monster hunter the expansion for monster hunter world that uh Zenogre is back um <laughs> f- for anyone who cares about monster hunter Zenogre is my favorite so i'm very yeah. excited to see him in stunning 4k excellent excellent that means nothing to me but i'm glad you're excited he's like a he's like a <laughs> lightning wolf bear just like hybrid okay. beast thing and he's great all right sounds good sounds good all right well please look forward to that then <laughs> all right <laughs> sorry all right, let's take sorry man this is fine it's fine you be, you, you be excited about whatever you want to be excited about it's cool um right so let's take a short break and chris can wipe himself down after that and then uh we will come back and we'll talk about what we've been playing recently so see you in a moment 
Welcome back for our second segment. We're going to talk a bit about what we've been playing recently. So, uh, have you managed to get any gaming time in lately, Chris? Yeah, I actually have. Uh, so, Good. Uh, nothing like kind of new and exciting, but um, uh, for those who are unaware and haven't, don't follow me on Twitter or whatever, I started a new job recently and I've been a bit stressed out about it. So, uh, what I've actually been looking to do is find something that was kind of cozy and relaxing to play in the evenings. Hmm. And, yeah, uh, good plan. Yeah, so I've uh, you know, I've been watching my social media feeds a lot, and a lot of my friends are really super enjoying Dragon Quest Builders 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it occurred to me that I never really gave Dragon Quest Builders 1 a fair shake, despite, like, buying it at launch. So, mm -hmm. so uh, over the past two weeks, I've really just been enjoying kind of relaxing, cozy times with Dragon Quest Builders. Cool. Um and it's been a delight. <laughs> that game is <laughs> uh, just c constructed from the ground up to be just so satisfying and kind of low stress and just makes you feel good for like every little accomplishment you achieve. Mm -hmm. um, to go through our normal, let's pretend nobody knows what this is spiel. Uh, Dragon Quest Builders essentially takes the design aesthetics of Minecraft, i.e. a world constructed entirely of cubes that lets you collect materials and build and reconstruct the world as you see fit, but it grafts it to uh, uh, the world of Dragon Quest. Um, so it's got this whole cutesy medieval RPG overlay on it, and as part of inheriting um, Dragon Quest stuff, not only does it inherit Dragon Quest visuals and designs and enemies, but it also inherits kind of the ethos of an RPG in general. So it tacks RPG design mechanics on top of a, a similar Minecraft experience. So yeah. what a lot of people who are super into game design, such as myself, find off-putting about Minecraft is the general lack of direction. Um, yes. So what Dragon Quest Builders does is it, it has a quest structure. So you're actually guided through what you do in the world, and it slowly ramps you up to understanding what needs to be done. So yeah. is where Minecraft just goes, go, and it expects you to go on YouTube and like figure out how to build a house to keep you safe, or just futz around so you figure it out. Dragon Quest Builders has a cute little friend who comes up to you and says, like, oh, well, you know, if we built a room with a bed and a lamp, we'd have a safe place to sleep. And, like... Ta-da, that's your first quest. Uh, so <laughs> what it does is it slowly ramps you up to understanding its world through the, these light story-tied quests. Um, and then after you beat the first mission, um, the first world, it's split up into three different kind of uh, separate islands with little stories tied to them. Once you beat the first of those islands, then it gives you the sandbox world because it's understood that you had, now you know enough to play at your leisure. Yeah, um, yeah. And I just find the whole more tightly structured approach to it to just be so satisfying. Um, also, yeah. the fact that it's third person and not first person. Yes, yes. There's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of sort of nice refinements over the kind of the Minecraft formula there. So there's a much greater emphasis on sort of making things explicitly functional in mm -hmm. Dragon Quest Builders. In Minecraft, there's a lot of um, just building stuff for the sake of it and making it look cool, but not necessarily do anything. Yeah. When I, know, I know there are ways to like do automation and all sorts of stuff in, in Minecraft, but in Dragon Quest, there's a specific emphasis on 
particularly for the questline stuff on on sort of building rooms and sort of building rooms at, at a particular size containing a certain combination of things that causes that room to become something specific um and yeah so in in that sense it's almost got a bit of um almost like the dna of something like almost like theme hospital and that kind of thing sure in that you're sort of uh, you're sort of developing out an area in different ways in in the way that you want within but it's not even really certain constraints in Dragon Quest Builders because you've got a whole island to build on. But yeah, for the sort of main quest lines, you kind of expected to keep everything nearby and defend it from monsters and that kind of thing. And yeah, there's just a really nice sense of structure to it. But you do also have the freedom to piss around with it if you want to as well, which is really nice. And uh, my, my wife has been playing Dragon Quest Builders 2 recently as well because uh, she absolutely devoured the first one uh, when it came out on PS4 and uh, picked up the Switch version as uh, sort of something to play other than Final Fantasy XIV for a bit. And yeah, she really enjoyed that. She similarly devoured that one. Um, worked her way through the main quest, sort of experimented with building houses and stuff as well. So yeah, th- this if you enjoy the first one, the second one is even better. So yeah if you uh if you do manage to to beat the first one or exhaust its possibilities in your mind do be sure to check out the second one as well because it's it's certainly not just more of the same yeah i I know the second one adds gardening doesn't it there's like a whole gardening and like vegetable growing and yeah there's like there's like a farming system there's sort of a really strong emphasis on it's not just you doing the building as well so there's like uh, the NPCs around the area, they can sort of help you out with projects and you can sort of get people to help you out with the farming and stuff. So, And you sort of you sort of work on your popularity and you can spend your popularity on learning new stuff and there's vehicles and all, all sorts of crazy stuff. So, Whoa, yeah. yeah. That sounds great. The first one is kind of funny because it, like, narratively, it talks about that. Like, you're, you're working on your town, and, like, you talk to the people in your town, and it's like, yeah, man, we've been having so much fun building stuff. <laughs> and then you look at the town, and it's like, bitch, you ain't built yeah. shit. You put, you put two grilled mushrooms in the chest that I put in the kitchen. <laughs> like... Stop telling me you're tired from building yeah, stuff. No, they're, 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 this... Like, you made one chair. You made one chair. <laughs> <laughs> you made 30 chairs. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the second one, I haven't played it myself yet, but um, having watched my wife at various intervals playing it, yeah, there's, there's definitely sequences where you can sort of leave the whole town to it and they will be, like, building some walls or something like that to be ready for a, an incoming monster attack or... Um, at one point they build like a giant kazapple cannon to take on a giant monster and that sort of thing so yeah this oh man yeah it's it's great and it's absolutely charming and one thing that it's really reminded me of is just the the music in dragon quest is just so beautifully composed it's like even if even if it's just um sort of like the midi versions rather than the orchestral ones this is music that has been properly composed by someone who understands music it's it's amazing there's sort of there's there's melodies and counter melodies and interesting harmonies and all sorts of stuff and yeah it's it's just beautiful absolutely beautiful yeah it's really cool too um just from a perspective like the way the games are put together from like a narrative emphasis but like what's really neat about these games is dragon quests builders one and builders two actually um are set up to be as far as the story and continuity goes related to the original Dragon Quest and in Dragon oh, Quest 2. Oh, yes, too. yes. So, so it's really neat. Like, Dragon Quest 1, like, the ending of Dragon Quest 1, 
if you ever played the NES original, like, the Dragon Lord gives the hero a choice. Like, do you want to join me or do you want to fight me, me, me essentially? Yeah. And um, the whole the whole storyline of Dragon Quest Builders 1 is it's a what if yeah. story like what if the hero had chosen to join the dark lord and the world had fallen into darkness and now you're trying to fix the aftermath yeah. of that and and 2 and 2 has a similar structure so it's really cute how they've tied it to to the actual narrative of the original yeah. game yeah no yeah two, 2 is is very directly related in some ways so like this you go in you go and help rebuild moonbrook at one point for example and that sort of thing so yeah there's yeah lots of lots of sort of series fan service in there so yeah, definitely uh, worth your time. So, anything else you've been playing? Uh, not in-depth enough to have a thoughtful conversation about it, but I have been dabbling with some shmups lately. Um, I got quite a couple shipments from some of my kind of back limited-run pre-orders from, and stuff. From, from your so dealers. So maybe in a couple weeks. <laughs> from your... Yeah, from my dealers. Yeah, so like I, I, I did get Caladrius uh-huh. Blaze, uh, Don Maku Unlimited Three, and Cyverior uh, Delta. Cool. So maybe in another couple weeks, I'll be ready to talk about those. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I'm a bit overloaded with shmups right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a good problem to have. All right. Uh, so what have I been up to? So I've been playing a few different things recently. Uh, first one I want to talk a bit about is uh, Wreckfest which is a game by a company called Bugbear Entertainment, who are, depending on who you are, are known for various different things. So probably the most well-known thing that they've done is uh, the Flat Out series on oh, okay. uh, Xbox, I think it was, um, mm-hmm. which was a sort of uh, destruction-heavy racer series that was has sort of become a bit of a cult hit over the years. So it's not super well-known or anything like that, but it's it was always very well-regarded by people who played it. Uh, they also made uh, Ridge Racer Unbounded for Namco, um, which was, as far as I'm concerned, a vastly underappreciated game. I mean, it's, it's barely Ridge Racer, but it is cool. If you enjoyed Split Second and Blur, then Ridge Racer Unbounded is definitely a game you should play because it's basically a spiritual successor to Split Second in particular. So there's lots of sort of driving through things and stuff exploding and dramatic camera angles and slow motion leaps across large gaps and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, so for the last probably five or six years at this point, they have been working on this project that was originally called Next Car Game. Uh, and I remember reporting on this, I think, when I was still working on GamePro. So that was back in, like, 2011. Um, and, yeah, so so Next Car Game was going to be a successor to Flat Out, for one thing. Um, and they also wanted to draw some inspiration from some older games, like Cygnosis's old Destruction Derby games on PS1, and also a really, really old game called Street Rod that was on sort of EGA-era um, PCs. Um, it was a sort of first-person game about sort of racing old bangers and sort of racing for pink slips and that sort of thing. So, that sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah, so um, so Wreckfest is a um, it's basically a, a banger racing game, first and foremost. So sort of like you take a beat up shitty old car take it in a into an arena full of mud and then either try and smash everyone up or win a race um but it's um there's a few noteworthy things about it but the sort of the first thing that they designed about this game was the damage model so before they really got a fully playable game out the door the first thing that they released to the public is this is one of the one of the first titles to do a kind of early access thing as far as i remember one of the first things that they released to the public was um, this thing called the sneak peek 
where where there was you drove a car it was in a completely abstract environment but this abstract environment was filled with all sorts of scenery elements some of which were static uh, some of which were physics based some of which were sort of uh, machinery and that sort of thing and all of them were designed to do really unpleasant things to your car <laughs> <laughs> and so this uh, this sneak peek was just a thing where you could drive around you could smash your car into things you could drop it into like giant wood chippers and that sort of thing and see what happens and <laughs> yeah it was it was great just because their, their damage model was so like it was a proper it's a proper sort of soft body damage model so like bits can come off your car you can squash it you can like shear off the front of your car your wheels can fall off all sorts of things like that so that was sort of the the main attraction of this game from the beginning but over time they've sort of gradually built it into a full-on game so the the full pc version came out last june i believe um, and then just in the last week or so, uh, they did a big patch for PC that corresponded with the release of the game on PS4 and Xbox One as well. So it's now available for consoles as well. Um, so yeah, Wreckfest is now basically complete. Um, and so what you have now is um, you've got a, a combination of a career mode where you take um, various cars and other vehicles through different events. Uh, you've got like a uh, a freeform single player mode where you can set up custom events using the tracks and the vehicles you've got and you can even create sort of asymmetrical events with different types of cars and vehicles competing against each other. There's a multiplayer mode that I haven't tried yet uh, and then on PC there's a very strong emphasis on mods as well so there's lots of people building tracks for it, building new cars for it, um, sort of tweaking various elements about the experience as well so this is one of those games like i'm not normally huge on mods um but this is this is one of those games that kind of has a almost a, a sort of track mania feel about it in that it's kind of designed to be a platform almost as much as a game and sort of the i love the, that with racing games yeah so, so yeah racing games are absolutely ideal for it so it's it's designed for sort of people to build on top of so although the console versions are cool uh, this is one case where i probably would advise people to go for the pc version if you can run it and uh, some cool things about it are that it's not just car racing either so like the very first event in career mode is the destruction derby where you're all uh riding right on lawnmowers um then, <laughs> <laughs> then later on there's a race where everyone is uh, sitting on sofas that have engines inside them um there's apparently like a rocket powered toilet at some point there's um there's uh there's a race where you are driving like a little three-wheeled van from the 1970s against an army of school buses and so there's 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 all sorts there's all sorts of really silly events in there as well as as well as sort of the more serious stuff but even the like the more serious events are like they're very much full contact races as well so you're sort of encouraged to slam into each other and break each other and sort of absolutely wreck your opposition by the end of it and it's uh, a lot of fun sorry if you can hear rattling my cat is sitting on the table having a scratch um yes so so yeah this is this is a lot of fun there was unfortunately a bit of controversy over the pc version because you know people are stupid and they like to review bomb stuff when things aren't going exactly their way um, like with astral chain right now <laughs> oh god yeah yeah it's ridiculous but yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it yeah it's it's pretty much just like the same situation with Wreckfest to be honest it, it is because people don't like the fact that this has had a console release that they review bomb the PC version on Steam because they supposedly they dumbed it down by affecting the handling and stuff Bugbear have actually come out and specifically said no we didn't we haven't done anything to the handling we've made a few tweaks to the AI which they've since rolled back um but no, the actual handling is exactly the same as it always was, and people have just been moaning about something that doesn't exist. God, 
that never happens normally but um yeah anyway so um hopefully that will die down after a week or two and uh people can sort of get on with enjoying the game for for what it is because what it is is a lot of fun it really does sound like it. It sounds like it sits at that inner... You know, we've had this discussion before on, on our Racing Games episode. Yeah. But Racing Games is just really just a blind spot for me. It's something I never get into. Yeah. Um, and, and what it really takes for me to get into Racing Games is this kind of Racing Game. Yeah. yeah. Just so, something so, that's ridiculous and like balls to the wall fun. Yeah. Yeah. Abs- absolutely. And this... There are sort of vaguely realistic elements to this, but it doesn't tip too far in that direction. Like, I... I kind of liken the handling to sort of um, things like um, sort of the Project Gotham series. So it's, oh, sure. it, it's got a kind of arcadey feel to the handling, but there's also you also you have to slow down for corners. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's but it's not like a Forza Major Sport where you need to slow down to twenty miles an hour to go around the corner. It is just you you do have to use the brakes a bit more than you might do normally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 fun. Definitely well worth checking out, and it seems to be being responded to pretty well by a lot of critics and streamers and YouTubers and stuff as well. So hopefully, it will have a, a long and happy life from this point onwards. So um, fingers crossed. Yeah, definitely. So the second thing I've been playing is uh, Senran Kagura Peach Beach Splash, which I know you've yes. been curious to hear about. Uh, so at the moment, over on MarioGamer.net, the cover game feature is um, the Senran Kagura series, specifically uh, the games from Bon Appetit onwards, which are ones that I've played a bit in some cases, or haven't played at all in the case of Peach Beach Splash onwards. Um, and I just wanted to give each of them a, a, a bit of attention and a bit of love and that sort of thing. So Peach Peach Splash has been sitting on my shelf for two years now, so I thought it was probably high time I actually played it. And uh, yeah, I've been having a lot of fun with it. And So if you're unfamiliar, then Senran Kagura up until this point had uh, sort of its first few installments had been... Um, various different evolutions of the beat-em-up formula so the first game was a 2d side-on brawler a bit like sort of streets of rage and so on shinobi versus which was on vita was a 3d one uh, which was sort of arena-based combat against uh, a combination of hordes of enemies and occasional but not occasional quite pretty frequent boss fights against against the major characters Um, then we had bon appetit which actually completely went in another direction and became a rhythm game about cooking which i've written about on murray gamer recently uh then we had estival versus which kind of returned to the shinobi versus formula but kind of improved the mechanics considerably so the, the there's a lot more of a almost sort of fighting game feel to estival versus in that um the encounters with the boss characters you you can't get through them with hack and slash you have to use some some sort of proper interesting tactics based on character matchups and abilities and that sort of thing so okay. there was a, a significant improvement in estival versus uh, peach peach splash is another one that went in a different direction so this is a third person shooter uh, based around the idea of uh, water gun fights and so naturally this drew quite a few comparisons to stuff like splatoon and stuff when it first came out right um, right it is not really much like splatoon at all um in that um it is more focused on uh, combat than splatoon is so splatoon is mostly about sort of area control and stuff and combat is kind of an incidental part of that whereas peach peach splash is very combat centric so um i've only played two of the main story arcs so far but uh so far what it, what it seems that you have is you have a combination of things it kind of takes the basic format of shinobi versus and estival versus and then swaps out the beat-em-up mechanics for third-person shooter mechanics so you okay will te- you will tend to have a mission with that will throw a horde of enemies at you and then you might have a boss fight against 
either an individual or another team or something like that so um and you work your way through the story working through a series of this this sort of thing and then there's occasional breaks for sort of other kinds of objectives like this one where you have to go and put out fires with the water guns and that sort of thing um so yeah this this is sort of the premise for this game sounds like not the sort of thing that would have um sort of necessarily particularly in-depth or detailed story but one of the nice things about Senran Kagura is that these characters are now so well defined that they can tell interesting stories with them in unusual contexts. So they do this with Bon Appetit with the cooking competition and they do it with Peach Beach Splash as well. So Peach Beach Splash is obviously kind of leading up to um, Senran Kagura 7, um, which is still in development at the time of recording. But I suspect from the way Peach Beach Splash is going, that is probably going to be the last one. Um, okay. Because uh, a lot of Peach Beach Splash's story so far has been about characters sort of um, wondering what's going to happen next. So, like in Hanzo's story, you've got Ikaruga uh, worrying about her graduation and worrying about having to leave her, her friends behind. In Gesson's story, oh, okay. you've got um, you've got Shiki. She gets an offer from a shinobi school overseas, and she has to decide whether she's going to go and accept that offer or if she's going to stay with her friends and that sort of thing. So there's there's all sorts of um, conflicts with the characters over deciding whether they're going to keep things as they are or if they're going to move on to different places and so on. And this is all going alongside what is happening with the tournament and sort of the the battling in the tournament is sort of helping them come to terms with that sort of thing and sort of gather their shinobi energy and that sort of thing and then there is a kind of an overarching meta plot that is actually relevant to the whole series as well but i won't spoil that for the minute so uh, shiki can't leave me <laughs> let's just be, let's just be clear about that <laughs> no i i feel i feel quite the same way yeah yeah it wouldn't be the wouldn't be the same without uh, shiki at all so um the actual gameplay uh, what you have is um each each time you do a mission you pick uh, a character and then you pick a deck of cards for them as well and that deck of cards can have uh three pet cards and then it can have i think it's, it's like five or six uh skill cards um and then what these do is that during battle um you will draw three of those cards and they will charge up gradually over the course of um you playing normally each card has a cost and the cost represents how long it takes to to fill up so you draw three of these cards at the start of the match when it's fully charged you can use it um and that card will have some sort of effect so some of them are directly offensive so they work a bit like the ninja arts in the beat-em-up center around cargoes some of them are supportive okay. ones that will like give you a shield or drop a shield that you can stay behind or heal you or that sort of thing uh, and then when you use a card you draw another one out from your deck so you, you keep cycling around these cards and charging them up and using them as special abilities so those are kind of almost as important as running around avoiding shots and making use of your weapon to defeat enemies and so on so it adds a really interesting twist on the standard third person shooter formula in that you're not just sort of aiming at stuff and shooting you're sort of deciding when is the best time to make use of these cards as well and then there's, okay. an, ex there's an extensive meta game around these cards so like you can level the cards up you can collect new ones you get new card packs from completing missions and so on and so like there's there's like something like 850 of these cards all together to collect a lot of them have the same function as each other but sort of like different rarities of the same character for example will have like a more effective version of the same ability so for example okay. if you get a one star Minori card for example that will be a sort of a heal of about 10% of your life but if you get a three star one that will be like heal 30% of your life and so on and you can then level that card up and make it more effective and that sort of thing so 
Um, and I assume the art changes on the card, just like in like mobile phone card games. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, um, so like everything can be leveled up. So you can level up your characters, you can level up your weapons, you can level up your pet cards, you can level up your skills. So there is a lot of leveling to do in this game if you want to. And because it's sort of a team-based game, even in single player, um, you need to sort of make sure that your teammates are loaded out with an appropriate set of cards as well. Um, and this becomes particularly apparent in uh, actually something that I'm going to talk about in the third segment of this uh, this this episode, uh, because there's there's a boss fight that was particularly striking to me in this. So I'll talk a bit more about that later. But yeah, it is important to not just focus on yourself, but also to make sure that all of your teammates have an appropriate layout of cards and weapons as well. Because how thematically appropriate? Yeah, the exactly. And Kagura ethos exactly so yeah i've been really enjoying it so far and there is an absolute shitload of content in this game um so just the basic story mode um there are 40 missions in total uh for like the basic story mode uh so 10 for each of the schools then there's like a final arc a bit like they're doing um shinobi versus and estival versus uh, so mm -hmm. once you've completed those four you then do like a final story uh, then alongside that, there's a series of things called Paradise Episodes, which are a bit like the Shinobi Girl's Heart thing in the uh, Versus games. So these are like shorter stories that focus on an individual character or a, a small group of characters. Um, and this is where you sort of get the opportunity to spend a bit of time with characters you, you, you don't really see in the main story. So some of um, like the, the girls from the mobile game, New Wave, who appear in Peach Peach Splash, they like get some of their own stories in these Paradise episodes. There's one, okay. with, there's one with Rin and Dai Doji. Um, also, all sorts of interesting combinations Sold. of characters in there as well. Yeah, I thought you might be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then on top of that, there's a straight sort of league mode as well. So you can sort of go straight into almost an Unreal Tournament style uh, league of battles where you just pick a team of your favorite shinobi, load them up with your weapons and cards that you've leveled appropriately, and then go through a series of increasingly difficult battles and so on as well. So you can play it as sort of like a straight third-person shooter as well. And then on top of all that, there is multiplayer as well. So I, I don't know how active multiplayer is these days i suspect maybe not that much but the senran kagura series is quite an active community online so it's quite possible that there are still people playing but to be honest even if you never touch the multiplayer there is so much single player stuff in here that you you will not be bored i've, I've that's been really, what i was yeah really hoping to hear from you so I, i've sat on this game like i don't own it yeah. um but i've always been interested in it like both aesthetically and from mm -hmm. like a gameplay perspective but um classic just like the the websites were bad at talking about it and when it came yeah. out it just kind of like dropped with all the reverberation of a wet fart and then disappeared yeah. yeah so like nobody talked about it when it was out um so i had no idea that there was this much of a heavy single player component yeah now that i know now that i know that there's so much for me to do without diving into multiplayer with all these rpg elements and character building and card collecting like yeah i'm super stoked to get a copy of this now excellent i'm glad to hear it yes so yeah so, so yeah there, there is there is really a lot of stuff to enjoy in here and uh, so it's probably going to take me a while to get through it but i'm hoping to at least get through enough of it to be able to write about it um sort of this week at the time you listen to this uh, recording but uh, we'll see how i get on but i've been really enjoying that so far so that's well worth a look i and do I think love that's... these characters so i'm always looking for new ways to interact with yes them. definitely definitely this is this is i've talked about this several times but this is this is like a real strength of the series is that these characters are so well defined at this point that they they just transcend their original context they are 
a cast of virtual actors at this point and sort of mm-hmm. so you can throw them into different contexts and it does make perfect sense even if it sounds ridiculous and it's great so yes more on that on MarioGamer.net in the coming week or so all being well uh, and after that i'll be moving on to burst renewal uh, which is a remake of the first um 3ds game only in the second timeline because it's all terribly confusing um <laughs> <laughs> I, I do actually think i kind of get it now it's like i didn't get it until i played peach peach splash and there's just like one event in the middle of peach peach splash and I was like okay so that's what's going on so i kind of understand it now but again i won't spoil it for anyone for the minute but um yes so i up until this point i have been doubting that there are two timelines in senra kagura but there are so no ah, anyway right um so that's that's mostly all i've been playing for now so i think at this point we'll take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about some boss fights so see you in a moment だとしたら夢がないわね。ま、今ってそもそもつまらないよ。あ、それは言えてるかも。言えていないわよ。てそれじゃ勇気男じゃない。どうよ。どうよって。Welcome back. For our third segment today, we wanted to just sort of kick back and have a fairly fairly lightweight fun discussion and we thought we'd talk about some of our favorite boss battles now um just before we came on microphone we were just talking about whether or not we should focus on sort of mid-game bosses or last bosses what i have actually got in my notes is i've got a kind of a mix of both really because in some cases some of the games that i want to talk about today the only boss is the last boss so we're not going to sort of make a, a huge distinction between the two here but uh, we will probably do a separate episode specifically on final bosses, especially those that are mechanically distinct from earlier bosses in the game at some point in the future. But for now, we're just going to talk about bosses in general, whether they're final or regular. So, um, all right, do you want to kick off, Chris? What have you got? Yeah, so I, I tried to kind of go in chronological order, kind of shaping... Yeah, a, I tried to do the same. Shaping a history of like my love of boss battles. Um, so the, the first one I have as being like a real standout boss, and I think this is one that resonates with a lot of people of our generation, uh, is the dragon from Mega Man 2. Right. It's like one of the like iconic bosses of the Nintendo era. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, so like, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I was obsessed with dragons and robots. Yeah. And, yep. and so this is a, gi- a giant dragon robot. <laughs> so, so it was pretty great. Um, it's just this huge sprite, right? And we know now, based on the way sprites were built on the original Nintendo, that a lot of the sprites in Mega Man were actually multiple sprites put together, yeah. um, which is one of like the amazing things. Mega Man himself is two sprites. Yeah. Because he's actually more colors than uh, Nintendo would technically, than NES architecture would allow a sprite to be. Um, yeah. So a lot of the Mega Man bosses are actually composed of multiple sprites kind of layered, um, and especially these big ones with multi- with so many colors. Um, so it's just this huge spectacle. And I remember uh, it has a very cinematic presentation 
that really sets it apart from kind of other bosses. So this is like in the Dr. Wily stages, like you're in the last stretches of Mega Man 2, you've been busting your ass to get here, and it reaches this point where, um, first of all, the music and the level is iconic. The, the, the Dr. Wily stage music from Mega Man 2 is like one of the most like often remixed like game tracks ever. Yeah. Um, so this incredible music's playing, you're climbing this structure, you get to this dark room, and it's just, it's immediately one of the most hellacious things in Mega Man, is when you have the single block platforms just over a pit of darkness. Yeah. <laughs> so, you just start jumping, like, block to block, across this black expanse of death, right? You miss one of these jumps, you're dead. You get a couple jumps in, the background fades away, and all of a sudden, this giant robot dragon appears on the left-hand side, starts chasing you across this pit. It's this just amazing introduction that, like, from a level like cinematic presentation, was like yeah. not something that happened a lot on the Nintendo because of the resources, obviously. Um, so eventually, you reach a point uh, where you're jumping across these blocks, and you just you reach an end point where there's just this structure of only three blocks. That yeah. Then you hit the structure of three blocks, and then the oh shit moment happens, right? The dragon stops, the boss bar, the boss health bar goes, dee -dee 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 -dee, like Mega Man style, <laughs> builds up on the right-hand side, music changes to boss music, and you realize, holy shit, I have to fight this thing. <laughs> and you do. And you have to fight it, you have to fight this giant robot dragon with only three platforms that are only as wide as your character, as your only footing. Yeah. Now, like, in retrospect, like, as a man in his 30s and, like, watching footage of this battle again, it's a really simple fight. The boss has only two attacks that are relatively easy to dodge. But it isn't just about, like, the difficulty of the fight. It's just about the sheer spectacle of it. Like, this yeah. this yeah. this lead up to this fight and like as a kid this fight's terrifying because these single platform jump sequences in Mega Man are nerve-wracking and here you've got to combine this tight platform jumping with a boss you're fighting so he's launching fireballs at you and you've got to not fall to your death and deal enough damage to to kill him. Now, now we know because you know Mega Man's Mega Man. Like if you use the quick boomerang, like you can just shred him in seconds. Yeah. But like I didn't know this when I was like six, <laughs> <laughs> right? So this just the, the sheer spectacle of this fight is something that always sticks with me. Yeah. I, I've not actually seen this before because, like, I, as I've said, Mega Man is not a, a series I know super well at this point. That that is an incredibly impressive sprite for the NES. Oh that's yeah, gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's 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 pretty stunning. Yeah, no, that's that sounds really cool. And I, yeah, exactly what you're talking about here. I I love like little things like sort of when they perfectly time like the boss bar appearing and building up and stuff like that. That can be so effective if you do it right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I love that kind of thing. Um, the first one I want to talk about is um, not especially a good boss, but it sticks in my mind, probably because I think it was the first boss I encountered in gaming. Mm. Um, and that was in Menace on the Atari ST. 
So Menace is a uh, side-scrolling shoot-em-up developed by DMA Design, who would then later go on to develop Lemmings and then subsequently become uh, Rockstar, who uh, developed Grand Theft Auto, of course. Um, but yeah, back in the Atari ST era, they made a bunch of cool games, and one of these was Menace. Um, the first boss in this game, I still can't beat today. <laughs> um because like the, the first level is not horrendously difficult or anything menace is um um a shoot em up that sort of has quite an interesting power up system so sort of like you shoot uh, a bunch of enemies and they will drop a block uh, that is initially just worth points and if you continue shooting that block you then get various different power ups depending on the number of times that you shoot it and so ideally by the end of the level you want to have equipped your ship with um there's a cannon you can put on the bottom that fires bullets and there's a laser gun you can put on the top that fires out a, a straight line laser across the screen so eventually you can have sort of three separate shots going at the same time um the unfortunate thing is that both the cannon at the bottom and the laser at the top have limited ammunition so you have to keep collecting these power-ups as you go through the level in order to keep them fully charged and ideally what you want is for them to be fully charged by the time you reach this boss at the end of the level which is quite difficult to do and it's probably the main reason i can't beat this boss but <laughs> the, the reason the reason this boss is memorable to me is because it has like you talked about with Mega Man, there it has an extremely threatening lead up to it mm. so um you, you're playing through this level you've got this music playing in the background and it's sort of like fairly conventional shooting of action then the music fades out you're sort of flying through this fairly straight line you know something is about to happen you get this incredibly threatening digitized voice going danger 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 and then this massive thing that is like sort of a brain with tentacles poking out of it appears at the side of the screen starts looking at you with this sort of dribbling eye um this, this was a game very much designed in sort of the r-type and gradius mold um mm -hmm. so it's very very kind of organic um yeah it, it sort of sits there and then it just throws this absolute torrent of what appears to be yellow sperm at you repeatedly um and it's very difficult to avoid this and you've got to shoot it in the eye and i just can't do it <laughs> <laughs> But it, it is an incredibly memorable moment because that, that was sort of the first boss that I encountered. And when I sort of think of bosses, when someone just mentions a, a game in a boss, a boss in a game, that is always one of the first ones that I mm. think of. Um, so, like I say, it's not necessarily a particularly good boss because I, I suspect part of the reason that I can't defeat it are that its attack patterns, they're not really sort of choreographed. There's a lot of randomization to them. And uh -oh. so that sometimes puts you in a position where it is literally impossible to avoid taking damage yeah um menace uh, is a game where you have a health bar rather than you get destroyed with one hit and so to a certain extent the game is designed on the assumption that you will take some damage um but yeah it's it's just very difficult so so from that perspective it's not a great boss but from my own sort of gaming history perspective it's it's important to me just because it was a very early one that I came across. Yeah, a good a good boss is memorable. A great boss is memorable and beatable. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yes. So that's that. So, All right, so where are you moving on to next? So I tried not to like focus on any one system too much. Like I, I could mm -hmm. probably just do a Nintendo bosses episode, right? But yeah. So I'll move on to Super Nintendo. Um, and for Super Nintendo, I have chosen the Dark Lich from Secret of Mana, mainly because Secret of Mana is, like, hot right now because the physical copy mm -hmm. of Mana Collection just came out. Um, but the Dark Lich is the second-to-last boss of Secret, Secret of Mana. Um, yeah. 
And it's one of those situations where arguably, because um, as we just kind of alluded to, um, sometimes in games what happens is that the last boss isn't really much of a boss at all. There's kind of a fun gimmick that's narrative related to beating it. Yeah. So uh, the Dark Lich is the last boss in Secret of Mana that's just a like a like a pure boss battle with no like gimmick. Yeah. Right. So like, so it's, it's the last like true boss that you follow the game's normal mechanics. So it's it's. Yeah. So it's, he's arguably the true final boss of the game because mm-hmm. you just yeah. you just have to survive and and bring to bear everything you've learned from the entirety of the game to defeat him. Um, from a narrative perspective, there's like insane stakes because it's a so secret of mana. The original secret of mana has um, three characters, right? The the boy who's usually uh, called Randy. Um, Orando, one of one or the other. Uh, the girl with the the blonde girl, who's usually called Prim, and the sprite, who's usually called Popoy. Um, but th- it's also one of those games you can name the characters whatever you want to name. But um, yeah, the Dark Lich uh, is a evil sorcerer who ends up possessing um, Dalek, which is Prim's like boyfriend. Yeah, um, and kills him and takes his body. So, like, emotionally, it's a tremendously high-stakes fight because you're essentially just, like, like your boyfriend's dead and now you've got to put him out of his misery um, because he's possessed by an evil sorcerer. Um, yeah. So it's just it's this massive screen-filling sprite of this skeleton in flowing purple robes with, uh, like, the cosmos... Like this is 16 bits, so I'm like I mean, I'm obviously embellishing a little bit, but like <laughs> like space exists in the in the vo- in the in the void inside his robes that that you don't see his rib cage. It's like space, like winking stars. It's yeah. just this like incredibly like ethereal presentation of just this death incarnate monster, and he just yeah. brings all like these. All the most powerful versions of every spell to bear against you. Like every time he hits you, it's like a quarter of your health gone. Um, and the sprite itself, as was necessary at the time for sprites this large, are, is composed of many pieces. So like his head is a separate piece, his hands are a separate piece, um, and they're all just moving in a way that wasn't super common at the time for a sprite to move. Like his head kind of sways back and forth and follows the movement of your characters in a way that it's only like in retrospect maybe like three different turning animations, but just that level of added interactivity yeah. makes him seem so alive compared to other other monsters you fight. And it's just hugely expressive. And mm. he, he disappears and phases through the floor, and his like head and his hands come out of the floor. Um, and the music, when you fight him, he has his own special fight theme. It's the only, You only hear this track when you fight him. It is one of the most unnerving and chaotic pieces of 16-bit music I think I've ever heard. <laughs> it's yeah. just pure terror and panic. And, like, you're in this fight with tremendous emotional stakes against this giant, terrifying, and very, like I mentioned, alive-looking sprite. Yeah. It's doing massive damage. You're burning through every spell in your catalog to try to figure out how to damage him. Like, pro tip, it's light, because he's the Dark Lich. But, like, yeah. but um, 
and this music is just like throwing you into an absolute like anxiety fit while you're fighting him. It's just the conglomeration of all these perfect design and artistic elements making you feel this fight in like the depths of your chest while you're doing it. Yeah. Oh, I love And that I can just bit. remember as a kid, like my, my friends and I like having a save file right at the end of Secret of Mana and just like every other Friday we'd have a sleepover and we would just kick <laughs> the sleepover off by like beating Secret of Mana so we could hear like the Dark Lich music. Yes. Oh. Like I just I'm gl- so I'm, many I'm glad memories the... associated with the specific boss battle. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one who kept saves before cool boss battles. <laughs> yeah, oh no, no, pretty much any of the games I'm talking about today that featured a save feature, I had saves before. Yeah. That was one of my, like, criteria, and I was like, who will I, what boss battles will I choose to discss? It's <laughs> usually ones I had save files, like, queued up before. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Well, I will look forward to, uh, to encountering him at some point then because I, I do have the lovely physical copy of Collection of Mana now so I'm looking forward to exploring mm. that alright um, next one I want to talk about is uh, from Wolfenstein 3D Spear of Destiny oh. which was the uh, the sort of quasi sequel to Wolfenstein 3D uh, that actually came out as a packaged commercial release rather than a shareware release and um, the boss that specifically springs to mind in this one is is the first one who appears on uh, floor five. Who is called um, <laughs> is called Transgross. Who I don't think is the, a name that you would get away with today. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is this is part of the of the Gross family who appears uh, throughout the series. Uh, so in total, the Gross family includes uh, Hans Gross who appears in uh, the original Wolfenstein 3D as the boss of the first episode. Uh, there is Gretel Gross, who is boss of episode 5 of Wolfenstein 3D. Uh, there is Mans, Pans, and Fans Gross, who are bosses of the secret floor on episode 6 of Wolfenstein 3D. And then there's Trans Gross, who is um, the first boss in Spear of Destiny. Um, so, the, I, I found this one particularly interesting for a number of reasons. So, uh, Spear of Destiny... Uh, was a game that my friends and I played before we played the original Wolfenstein 3D. And I think, I think it was our first ever first-person shooter experience as a result. And so this was a new kind of game for us. So this this was something that we hadn't experienced before. This is something that we found really exciting because it was it was this this new kind of uh, this new kind of game. We got very very immersed in the whole atmosphere and use of sound, music, and stuff in Wolfenstein 3D, which obviously looks quite primitive today, but at the time it was great. So sort of the combination of that ad lib music and that stereo sound blaster sound was just brilliant for the time. And when you reach floor five in Spear of Destiny, uh, you get this track from the soundtrack called "The Ultimate Challenge" starts playing. Now, in Ooh. retrospect, a lot of a lot of Bobby Prince's old music for these old shareware games for stuff like uh, Wolfenstein 3D and Doom, although a lot of it is considered to be iconic these days, from a modern perspective, a lot of it isn't terribly interesting from a sort of from a compositional perspective like bobby prince fucking loves his 12 bar blues sequence but the interesting <laughs> thing about the ultimate challenge is that this 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 is a genuinely cool piece of music because it sort of gradually builds up and it's got this wonderful feeling of uh sort of uh lurking horror and lingering tension to it and but on top of that it sort of occasionally sort of shifts into this feeling of like you're this badass and you can triumph over whatever is coming your way but also you're you you might die in the process <laughs> yeah see, um, 
What's now, cool about the Dark Lich theme that I was just cut, talking about is it has none of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, just it's just pure. You're going to die here. This is where <laughs> this is where you die. Yeah. Um. So the the interesting thing about um boss design in Wolfenstein 3D is that. Um, rather than what we tend to get in a lot of games these days, which is that bosses are often in their own self-contained area, um, in Wolfenstein 3D, a boss would would be part of a level. Oh, so, that's so cool! Um, I don't remember that. So, so you would you would typically have to sort of fight your way through a level in the normal way before you encounter the boss, and then the boss would be the last part of that level. And this this was the case in in all the way through Spear of Destiny as well. So you had to fight your way through sort of the usual sort of maze and nazis coming your way in in this level um and then towards the end you come into this uh this area that is quite sort of disorienting in some ways because it's kind of laid out in a symmetrical way um and so it's after a little while it gets quite hard to keep track of of which direction you're going which direction you're facing um and they just sort of plonk him at one end of this area so it's not like you open the door and he's there it's like you go into this area and there's like a few treasures around there's a bit of ammunition to pick up and then suddenly you go around a corner and there's this massive thing yells something in german at you and you're like oh shit what do i do now um <laughs> so mechanically speaking like most of the bosses in wolfenstein 3d he was pretty much just a bullet sponge but yeah. it was the combination of the clever level design the excellent use of sound for the time um and just the, the context in which you fought him just made that a really memorable encounter and it's sort of like it really sort of set the tone for the rest of spirit destiny and so the the other boss fights all kind of had that same thing where you sort of encounter a boss as part of your your navigation through a level and that sort of thing and it's yeah it just made them really memorable despite the fact that they weren't necessarily mechanically the most interesting things but they they were memorable to fight regardless and beatable <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I don't remember cool. boss fights in Wolfenstein, but it's been a long time since I engaged in Wolfenstein from a yeah from a serious yeah. standpoint. Yeah, but they are they are cool bosses actually because they they distinguish themselves very much from the standard enemies. So most of the standard enemies in Wolfenstein are sort of kind of grounded in reality. So you've like got your um, your German officers and your SS officers and your and that kind of thing, and so they're sort of they're human i mean they're, they're they're still nazis so you still want to shoot them but they're they are humans um spear of destiny does sort of introduce zombies and stuff a little bit later on as well but still most of the enemies you're fighting are human and it distinguishes the bosses in wolfenstein 3d by they most of those sprites are sort of twice the width of the standard enemy sprites mm -hmm. and so they're all these really sort of hulking muscular huge enemies who appear uh, they all have their own custom sound sets. Uh, they all have their own sort of unique ways of uh, attacking that are different from the standard enemies and so on. So, yeah, it, it does really distinguish them. So um, that was a really cool thing about it. But you encounter them relatively infrequently throughout the course of the game. So in the original Wolfenstein 3D, you would only find a boss at the end of an episode. So that was like once every 10 levels. Uh, okay. In Spear of Destiny, it was once every five levels and so on. So they, they weren't sort of something that you came across super regularly but they, it was always a significant moment when you did sure looking at the wolfenstein wiki uh tr it is heavily implied that transgrossa is transgrossa because he is transhuman he is the first character you encounter that appears to have undergone cybernetic enhancements and he yes, has so a he he heavily digitized speech sample uh, implying that he may be robotic or cybernetic 
Yes, so that that's sort of a running theme in, in Wolfenstein is sort of enhanced humans. So, so sort of part of the plot is sort of like Hitler enhancing himself and the, the guy creating these zombies and so on. Like if you look at Transgross's sprite, he's like got spikes on his shoulders. It looks like his arms are made of chain guns rather than him just holding them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that's that's quite a common thing and sort of like sort of the famous boss in Wolfenstein 3D is Hitler in a robot suit at the yeah. end of the third episode and so on. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, that sort of continued in the other bosses as well. It was kind of uh, kind of anachronistic in a lot of ways, but it was it was a cool, distinctive part of of Wolfenstein, certainly. All right, what's next for you? What is next for me? I don't have a lot to say about this one, but I just wanted to mention it because it's very memorable to me. It's not really special from like a mechanical standpoint, but um, Atma Weapon from Final Fantasy VI. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So Final Fantasy VI, from a narrative standpoint, is kind of split into two very distinct halves right so you have the world of order and then the world is destroyed and then you have the world of ruin um Mm -hmm. and atma weapon is essentially considered kind of the final boss of the world of order before you move on to the world of ruin so it's just this massive boss once again it's just a, a tremendously detailed sprite a very challenging fight nothing mechanically special about it really but um he has his own music, right? And that really, that's that's yeah. all it took for me to be, like, memorable for a boss. <laughs> it's just, like, the holy shit moment of special music. Yeah. So I, yeah. I have nothing, really, to say in super detail about Atma Weapon. Just the music was incredible, so that fight always sticks with me. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I can get behind that. The, the whole sort of unique music thing is always something that sort of, going back to our first episode, gives me the goosebump effect. Yeah, so. goosebump effect super important. Uh, yeah. Now, one that I have that I can talk great length about from a presentational and mechanical standpoint is um, Shinobi 3 on the Genesis. Okay. Um, so stage 3 of Shinobi 3 is called, quote-unquote, Body Weapon. <laughs> and this is, this, is okay. al- this is also a name I usually extend to the boss of this stage. Yeah. Um, so Shinobi 3 on the Genesis is just a beautiful... First of all, a beautiful game. It's like the Genesis like chugging on like all cylinders um <laughs> musical presentation it's it's just the best of the best uh, it's just sega at their peak in, in in the 16-bit era um and what body weapon is is an incredible example of once again kind of what we have been talking about with a lot of these bosses is a lot of these most memorable bosses have a tremendous lead up yeah and, yeah. and Body weapon is incredible because it's the level is the classic like bio lab infiltration. Mm-hmm. So like the first half of the stage is very typical like you're infiltrating the lab and like you know you walk by giant glass cylinders that have the enemies in them and they shatter and then the enemies come jumping out and harass you and they're like, gross like brain things with like hoppy legs on them. Um, and everything is, but you're in like a clean lab, and then you fight the, the mid boss of the level, which is just like a horde of these like hoppy brain things. Then you scene transitions, and you go to the second part of the level, and the second part of the level is like the depths of the lab where everything has gone wrong, <laughs> and yeah. it and it is the classic special like organic rampant growth aesthetic stage where everything just looks like it's made of like meat and poop 
Like, everything is just covered in, like, brown and orange, like, throbbing veins and, like, horrifying, like, masses of out-of-control cancerous flesh. Mm. And it's gross. And as soon as you step foot in there, and I will read my exact notes, and I'm going to read it with the typo, because I think it's better with the typo. (laughs) (laughs) Throughout part of stage two... Uh, throughout part two of the stage, there is a giant Cthulhu zombo-looking motherfucker in the background harassing you with lasers. So, so, so I just, so like he emerges in the background, and as you're making your way through the level, jumping over things, fighting enemies, there's also a reticule. Uh, like a green reticule sight moving around, and if that locks onto you, you get blasted with a laser. Yeah. So you have to stay continuously moving because this guy just keeps firing lasers at you from the background. Surprise, surprise! When you get to the end of the stage, there's special music, and mm-hmm. this thing emerges from the ground with his weird, like, betentacled face. And he's massive, so, like, he just emerges from, like, the pool of meat and poop. And, like, you're only fighting his, like, neck and head and his hands that, like, emerge. Mm. And it's this massive sprite that's, like, once again, just extremely notable for its level of detail. And, like, finite amounts of animation contained within the sprites. So there's, there's... They've animated, like, the veins all over his, like, exposed brain and stuff. So, like, like they pulsate and, like, like neon light, like, travels through them. And, like, yeah. the little, like, pustules and, like, growths on his head, like, throb and convulse. And, like, there's little, like, craters in his head that just, like, emit, like, blobs that you have to dodge. And they, like, they, <laughs> like, they, like sphincter like contract and open to like shoot stuff at you and like with like a couple frames of animation um (laughs) and he's got one weak point and it's his teeny tiny little eyes yeah and if you've ever played shinobi before you know that like you have to be pinpoint accurate with those shuriken shots so it's just extremely unnerving because there's this techno electric like horror music playing as and you're fighting this total monstrosity and to this point all you've really fought is like robots and ninjas and, and like samurais and like soldiers so like here's this just otherworldly monstrosity and you're dodging his hand swipes and then every yeah. now and then he charges up and he shoots this laser blast out of his mouth because it's the laser he's been harassing you with from the background, but now it's at point-blank range, so it takes up (laughs) like a quarter of the screen, and you've got to dodge that while dodging his hands while also dodging, like, the poop like, rocks he launches at you out of his forehead. (laughs) It's just so much. And it's, like, and he's scary-looking, and it's just, it's a a boss fight, man. It's... Yeah. Massive build up and then he's going to kill you the first time. Like he's totally yeah. going to kill you the first time. Yeah. And I love him so much. <laughs> oh, that yeah, sounds it's great. Unbelievable. I, I, yeah, should I be 3 sort of one from the the most recent Mega Drive collection? I I haven't played a huge amount, so but yeah, I'm definitely going to have to look into that a bit more now. Shinobi 3 in- is a game of pure spectacle. Yeah. So like there's there's like a like a surfboard chase level where you're like fighting 
flying giant robots from a surfboard and just it, there's there's the horse the horse levels it, it just every turn this game is throwing just incredible stage spectacle at you it just feels like yeah. the mo- the world's most idealized ninja action movie that you get to participate in it's amazing yeah. oh sounds great sounds great i'll have to explore that further then for sure all right um talking of poop i feel like it would probably be remiss of me in a uh discussion of boss fights to not talk about the great mighty poo and I, conquer. I knew you were gonna drop the great mighty poo <laughs> i knew it now if if you have never played either conquer's bad fair day or conquer live and reloaded on xbox um yeah this this is the part that everyone remembers from conquer um, there, there are several boss fights in Conquer, and, and they're all actually quite interesting boss fights, but this is the one that sticks in everyone's mind for several reasons. Uh, the main one being that it is a piece of interactive musical theatre. Yes. Um, and, yeah, so so you, you come into this into this area, uh, you, you, you're already in a giant mountain of shit, so you're, all, you're already quite familiar with the fact that this is going to get scatological. Um, because it already has, um, but yeah, this 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 massive thing with sweet corn for teeth comes g- slowly rising out of this pool of liquid shit in the corner of the stage, uh, and then he starts singing at you, um, and there's like little lyrics at the bottom of the screen, and there's a lump of shit bouncing along the lyrics, um, so you can sing along with it if you want to, um, and then sort of in between each verse of the song. Um, you have to fight him and the way you fight him is by when he bursts out of the ground and starts singing at you again you have to stand on a special pad uh, it's like most of Conker's action is about finding these context sensitive pads and pressing a button on them which will give you the item you need to do something specific so and in this case you stand on this pad it gives you a lump of toilet paper you throw it down his throat um, and that deals damage to him and then you repeat this process several times until you can finally flush him away once and for all and so again mechanically it's not a terribly complicated fight um but just just the context of the presentation of that battle is still some of rare's finest work it is it is just a beautifully presented thing it's the fact that it takes it takes a fight against a giant sentient lump of shit so utterly seriously that i i just love it i love it so much <laughs> oh Conquer is Conquer is such a great game. I mean, I mean, again, mechanically, it is not Rare's strongest game. Some of the humor has aged better than others, but just that sequence in there. If if you play one bit of Conquer, either on N sixty four or on Xbox, make it that bit because it's it's something special. It really is. <laughs> the song is oh, in my dear. head way more often than I'd like it to be. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> me, me and my friends, me and my friends, we still often greet each other by singing that to each other. So yeah, it is something that has stuck in our head ever since we originally played it on the N sixty four. So, and we all know all of the words. Yeah, oh like, yeah, all of them without without having to look them up. We know the whole song all the way through. Um, yeah. So there's that. Um, all right, moving on from there and sort of staying on the theme of disgusting organic things. Um. I want some of the some of the final bosses I wanted to talk about. I actually want to take these as a group, which is the final bosses of the various Trauma Center games. Oh yeah. Um, and so, so Trauma Center, if you're unfamiliar, was a series from Atlas, uh, which appears to be defunct now, unfortunately. But uh, it started on DS um, and then moved to Wii. 
Um, and so there's, there's several installments. There's two on DS, um, and there's three on Wii. One of the ones on Wii is a remake of one of the DS ones, and then the other two Wii ones are completely original ones. Um, and Trauma Center is a game about medicine, mostly surgery, but there, uh, in the last game, Trauma Team, uh, there is also a bit of like diagnostic medicine, forensic investigations, first response, and that sort of thing as well. So it, it sort of expands on there all the way through. But the interesting thing about Trauma Center is it's sort of sci-fi medicine. So um, it, it, all of the games in the series tend to start out with fairly realistic procedures, albeit executed in um that phrase you love so much action surgery format um which is um yeah so so Tra trauma center is kind of an action puzzle game basically where you have to uh, sort of use the right tools for the right jobs and sort of draw gestures on screen using either the stylus on the ds or the wii remote on the screen on the wii um and so it's all, it's all about recognizing different symptoms and knowing what to do about those symptoms. Um, and over the course of all of the games, they tend to involve sort of stories of like bioterrorism and that sort of thing. And so each game tends to have like a, a sort of a sort of main villain disease, if you like. Um, that uh, by the end of each of those games, you defeat that disease. You sort of defeat like the disease in the patient zero of of the respective um, the, the respective thing. And each of these encounters are spectacularly and unusually dramatic for a game supposedly about medicine um in that they sort of have incredible dramatic music you're sort of like looking at someone's heart and there's like sort of a choir of gregorian monks chanting in the background and sort of orchestral hits and like thumping bass lines and that sort of thing so like the the music for the original trauma center game was done by shoji Meguro, who is the guy who does a lot of the shin megami tensei series for example mm -hmm. and then the subsequent games were done by uh atsushi kita joe i think his name is um who has obviously taken a lot of inspiration from shoji Meguro. he uses a lot of similar sounds and that sort of thing in his music and yeah so these final confrontations in the various trauma center games they they are incredibly dramatic they are proper final bosses they always have intense actions and all of them um have some sort of incredibly meaningful final action that unfolds in complete silence and so this is a proper sort of shivers down the spine moment so like the last thing you do in each of these games is always the music will fade out you will be in complete silence and you just get the impression that everyone else in this operating theater is looking at you going yeah breath go held <laughs> go, on, go on do it um and yeah so and and yeah it's it's just incredible so like it's it's always like sort of uh, like in the first one you literally stop time so that you can inject the serum into this uh, into this disease and then the other ones you're sort of doing various things to to sort of remove the disease from patient zero and that sort of thing and it's always sort of like the disease has mutated into some sort of horrible slobbering monster and that sort of thing and it's oh, it's just it's just fantastic it's it's the most unrealistic thing about those games but it's also one of the best things about those games it's just such a wonderful sense of closure it's great yeah so um yeah the, the trauma trauma center games in general are fantastic and i would love to see them make a comeback but uh for the moment you are limited to um ds and Wii. but uh, yeah if you have the opportunity to try them i strongly recommend it because they are great all right uh what have you got next uh i'm gonna go into one of the very great greats uh, i'm gonna go into symphony of the night um, Ah, okay yeah because uh, i would be remiss if i didn't have some Castlevania up in this business. <laughs> um, 
So, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, uh, of course, one of the most memorable things about it is that it has the dual castle structure, right? Like, if you've played yes, the game right, yes. and you've done everything right, uh, you get to play through the castle, and then you get to play through the upside-down castle. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting things about the upside-down castle from a design perspective and kind of a thematic perspective is um, the the standard castle uh, all kind of plays towards what Castlevania's always done, which is kind of a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek exploration of kind of horror in more of like a cheesy sense like vampires and frankensteins and demons oh my and like (laughs) and like a little bit of mythology um one of the things that symphony of the night did very subtly but if you're a fan of like horror and like macabre narratives you'll notice after a while is um the upside down castle makes a very distinct shift into like genuine horror Yes. Like so yeah. so the upside down castle is very disturbing. Um the music is more ambient and scary, uh, less yes. less triumphant and rock and roll field. The enemies become more unsettling and this is especially true of the bosses. Yeah. Um so there are two bosses from the upside down castle I want to talk about. Um the first of which is Beelzebub. Which mm-hmm. is not a terribly challenging boss fight, but a super memorable boss fight. Um, so, and also what's interesting about the Beelzebub boss fight is uh, it takes place in the first boss fight room, but in the Upside Down yeah. Castle. So like, the first boss fight of Castlevania Symphony of Night is the classic Slog Run Gaibon battle, which is also one of the second to last bosses of Castlevania Four. And it takes place in a room much, much larger than it really needs to be for that fight. Yeah. And and it almost leaves you questioning, why is this room so big? Uh, you're also questioning, why is there a giant pentagram scrawled on the wall behind <laughs> here? Yeah. And really, it's interesting from a design perspective, because it tells you that when they were putting this game together, they were conceiving of the upside-down castle while they were conceiving of the regular castle as well. Because yeah. this room has was always conceived, clearly, as a staging ground for the Beelzebub fight. Um, because Beelzebub is massive. Mm-hmm. He does not fit in one screen. Um, and what he is, is just a giant, rotting corpse suspended from the walls and the ceiling by these rattling chains... Um, his primary method of attack is just these disgusting bloated flies that harass you while you just try to chip away and damage him. And as you chip away and damage him, his just like disgusting rotting limbs break off and like fall. Yeah. And it's terribly anticlimactic. Like when you kill him, just the, the last bit of his corpse falls on the, and like it's over. It's just over. Um, it's not really hard. It's just disturbing, and it's it's one of yeah. it's one of the fights that's like we're in the shit now. Like you know what I mean? Like we're in another realm where like horror yeah. is part of this formula, where the stakes are high, the the threats are disturbing, and it's it's really one of those like moments from like a narrative and presentational perspective where it's not telegraphed to you. There's no dialogue. 
with the Beelzebub fight. You know, he's not an important story character, but it's just so telling in terms of what it communicates about, like, the atmosphere and the themes of the game that, like, oh my god, I'm just chipping away at a massive rotting corpse that's bombarding me with the bloatflies yeah. that are eating it while, like, maggots wriggle on him. And, like, it's a, it's a far cry from, like, you just fought Scylla and Charybdis from from Greek mythology. How cool! And like now we're <laughs> now now we're in a realm where we're literally fighting like one of the demons of the Ars Goetia. <laughs> and it's, it's it's almost scary that he doesn't fight back. Like the the, the the horror element of just like you're almost putting this thing out of its misery. Yeah, it's just really disturbing from like a pure horror and like body terror perspective. Um, and then the other boss is, of course, one of the most famous Castlevania bosses of all time, uh, which is Grand Falloon, also known as Legion, which is, once again, in a massive room, because this boss is tremendous in size, and it is a giant orb composed of writhing naked human bodies, yeah. um, and he litters the ground with these shambling bodies... So not only are you trying to jump and navigate this massive room space to chip damage away from this giant spectacle of a boss, um, but these corpses that he's just dropping like they're freaking dandruff flakes are shambling across the floor, and they're occasionally screaming in agony. They don't really damage you or attack you unless you walk into them, because they're literally just forsaken bodies, but you have, you've got to kill them to manage the space in the room. Yeah. Once you've chipped away enough of this armor of corpses that surrounds him, what's inside? Just a massive HP Lovecraft-inspired, tentacled, otherworldly horror. Uh, and your <laughs> reward for exposing this is, surprise, now you've also got to deal with lasers that are just going to shoot <laughs> out of these tentacles. Like It's like the stakes just continue to dial. The whole time, there's just cries of agony and pain like and the music is disturbing and it's just pure spectacle and it's unsettling and anytime you're expected to perform reflex based tasks while you're physically unsettled is a really weird place to be put so yeah. like this boss always and he grand Floons made returns in subsequent castlevania games just because of its popularity but um yeah, Symphony of the Night, I just remember encountering this thing and being like 14 and being like, uh, is this a giant <laughs> orb of naked bodies? What is going on? <laughs> just being mortified. Yeah. yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, so those are like the two big ones from Symphony of the Night for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so many in that game. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Castlevania has got had some fantastic bosses throughout its lifetime. Um, a lot of them make an appearance in um, the one I can never remember the name of, but the one I really like the the one on the sort of best of Castlevania one on Xbox 360 and PS3. Um, Harmony of Dissonance. Yeah, I think no. So Harmony of Dissonance or ha Harmony of Despair. One of, one of the, so, Har Harmony of Despair, I think. Um, yeah, so so that that one sort of acts as. Um, yeah, Harmony of Despair. That, that's the one that's sort of um, split into discrete levels. And then the focus of each of those levels is 
making your way to the boss which is in a specific part of the level and then defeating that boss and so it sort of brings in a lot of classic bosses from castlevania history throughout the course of that so um i think legion's in there at one point um and there's all sorts of other ones as well that are sort of very memorable so yeah all right great stuff um i've got two more uh just to let you know so if, you, if you've got a few more then that's great uh i've got specifically two more i Me want to talk too. about um, the first one I want to mention is actually a, a slightly more recent one, um, which is actually an MMO boss, which is uh, Twintania from uh, Final Fantasy XIV. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Twintania was the hardest super boss in A Realm Reborn when it first came out. So when, fi when Final Fantasy XIV had its complete reboot into what it is now, um, Twintania was the, the hardest super boss in the the main raid raid dungeon which was called the the binding coil of bahamut um and over the course of um sort of pre heaven's ward final fantasy 14 um the binding coil of bahamut um sort of kind of wrapped up the complete storyline of what happened in final fantasy 14 version 1.0 so how the world ended how that happened how um and sort of how you make sure that isn't going to happen again um, and as as part of this process, you're sort of finding out about um, this sort of uh, ancient race of people called the Allegans, who you have sort of been finding bits and pieces out about as you've been progressing through the game. So the the Allegans are sort of like the the obligatory, mysterious ancient race of people who are no longer around, but all of their all sorts of relics of theirs are still sitting around all over the place. And uh, Twintania is a giant dragon who was one of their weapons. And so um, Twintania um, is, it, it shows up. You're sort of exploring various parts of this. Um, it starts as a dig site, but you eventually sort of unearth the fact that, oh shit, Bahamut might be buried down here. Um, and uh, so you fight Twintania on Bahamut's hand, basically. Um, so you, you, you go in there and this dragon appears, flies down. This incredibly dramatic music comes on that you've only heard once in the game previously on the sort of true final boss of the main final story dungeon. You've only heard it once. And to be honest, most of the time, by the time you, you reach that point in the game, you absolutely flatten that boss, so you won't have heard it very much. Mm. But by the time you, you reach Twintania and you hear this music again, you know that this is, this is serious business right now. And so... In its original context, this was sort of the hardest raid in the game. Uh, and it, so it required eight skilled players to know what they were doing. It required them to know um, sort of what the various attacks that were coming your way were, how to deal with them, when to be in different places and so on. But for those who haven't explored Final Fantasy XIV before, um, as much as being an MMO, it is very much a game about boss fights. Um, and each of those boss fights is something that is quite heavily choreographed. It's almost, I, I often kind of liken it to um, almost shoot 'em up design in some cases, mm -hmm. in that it's very much about being in the right place at the right time, recognizing the safe places to be, and also the best opportunities to actually be able to get in there and do some damage. Um, and so bosses tend to follow a strict phase based pattern based on how much damage you've done to them, so sort of at various. Uh, thresholds of hit points that you get them down to they will change phase and something different will happen so Twintania was noteworthy and it, it, at the time of its release it was also one of the most complex fights from a phase based perspective so I think there were like five phases altogether oh, wow. um, and so that was a lot of stuff for people to learn and that was partly why it was so difficult because you, you had to practice each of those phases individually 
Um, and obviously, if you fucked up in phase five, you then had to go and do the first four all over again to repeatedly do that until you got everything right in one go. And so there was, there's a lot of stuff in that Twintania fight that kind of became so notorious that it entered the realm of popular folklore in the Final Fantasy XIV community almost. Okay. So, so like, you just have to say dive bombs to someone who plays final fantasy 14 to send a shiver down their spine because they're like oh god because dive bombs was probably the most difficult mechanic to deal with in that fight so dive bombs was part of the fight where the boss would actually sort of leave the arena and then sort of randomly appear at the side of the arena dive across the place potentially send you slamming back into the wall and usually killing you if it hit you and so if you fucked up dive bombs that was that was normally it for for that attempt and so it was something you really had to get right. But because of the sort of combination of the dramatic music and the narrative context and everything like this, this was such a cool fight to be part of. And when it was it was difficult and it was unforgiving, but at the same time it was satisfying and it was never unfair. So if you messed up, it was always there was always a reason for it. You could always pin down exactly what you'd done wrong. Sure. Uh, which is one of the things that Final Fantasy XIV is pretty good at as, as you go through. So sort of all of the boss fights are completely fair. You just have to know what you're doing. And so that does sort of lead to a certain amount of culture of sort of needing to read up on them or watch videos before you fight them, which is an aspect that I've come to not like quite so much about it. But it is something that the community has always enjoyed quite a bit. And it is sort of a defining part of that game's design. So, um, And Twintania is a great example of that. And so it's just a really cool fight in context. It's incredibly memorable to me just because it, it used to be the hardest thing in the game. I, di I never took it down when it was the hardest thing in the game. I took it down a lot later when they sort of made it quite a bit easier to complete. It was still difficult when I did it. And so it was still incredibly satisfying to be able to complete that encounter. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, it's cool that that is still there in the game if you want to take it on. I don't know if it's possible to solo it yet. Um, there are some fights that used to take eight people that you can now solo in Final Fantasy XIV, um, which is interesting. I don't know if anyone has done Twintania yet. That's not something I've looked into. Theoretically, you should be able to do it now, given the fact that like the item level you are at at the end of the game now is something like 500 levels higher than you would have been at the end of, of Realm Reborn. But I, I, there are certain mechanics that are kind of dependent on more than one person being there so uh. it, is, it is a true sort of cooperative thing so sort of like you have to release people from sort of being trapped in things and that sort of thing so yeah it was sort of a true cooperative experience in which everyone had to play their part so again not something not something that would appeal to everyone but certainly a memorable experience if if you if you kind of engaged with it if you were there for it and if you are sort of in the right mindset for it so that's a very cool one Okay, so you got two more. Let's let's have one of them then. I do. Uh, Metal Gear Solid Four, the Metal mm. Gear Rex versus Metal Gear Ray battle. Um, okay. So for Metal Gear fans, um, Metal Gear Solid Four is a, kind of a tremendous game from a narrative and presentational standpoint, right? Because uh, Metal Gear Solid Four is about kind of the end of Snake's life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, old Snake is whatever, you know, he's got his mustache and he's gray. And, like, if you sit still too long or you crouch too long, he, he, he like, rubs his lower back. Like, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a game about aging and it's a game about reflecting back on your life. Like, as you, as you realize your life is coming to an end, uh, like, the, the, it, how it becomes necessary to reflect on where you've come from and where you are. Um, yeah. 
And one of the things Metal Gear Solid 4 does, and we kind of talked about this, I believe, during the Goosebump Effect episode, our very first episode, um, but one of the later areas of Metal Gear Solid 4 is a return to Shadow Moses Island, which is where, yeah. where the entirety of Metal Gear 1 takes place. Um, mm-hmm. So it brings Snake's life full circle to a return to this place that was so formative in, in who he is. Um, and you come back to Shadow Moses and the end of this sequence, this chapter, because Metal, Metal Gear Solid 4 split into location-based chapters. You like trot, you globe trot to do different objectives. The end yeah. of this chapter is a massive escape sequence wherein you must rely on to save your life Metal Gear, um, a rebuilt Metal Gear Rex, which is the very thing that nearly destroyed your life the first time you were at Shadow Moses Island. So yeah. there's a, a massive escape sequence where you're trundling through uh, this military industrial complex, piloting the very robot that not only nearly killed you, but also consumed your brother's life. And that yes. killed your brother. <laughs> so, and now you have to rely on it to save your own life. Um, and the the apex of this massive escape sequence is... You finally get out of like this warehouse, um, and then you have to fight Metal Gear Ray, which is being piloted by your old enemy, Revolver Ocelot, who is at this yep. point now possessed by the consciousness of your dead brother. <laughs> so, yep. I mean, essentially, it's just like a giant robot fanboy dream, right? Because you are in yep. your giant robot, and, you're, and Ocelot is in his giant robot. And it is just this massive, destructive, cathartic, explosive kaiju battle because all the robots just scream like Godzilla for some reason or another. Why? Because it's cool. And after, at this point of the game, right, you've gone through some really challenging stealth sequences, right? Just na- like nail biting stealth. So the, there's just this nearly orgasmic catharsis. At this moment in time, because this is just balls to the wall action at this point. Yeah, you're just you're just thundering around as a giant robot, uh, just firing lasers and like contrail missiles and like your Metal Gear Rex. So you have this big jaw, and you can bite onto Metal Gear Ray and like lift him up and like slam him to the ground, and then you like scream like Godzilla, and then you can like stomp on him and like take a jump back and like pelt him with missiles while he's writhing on the floor, and it's just it's a level of spectacle that is just insane. And you're just fulfilling this, if you're a Metal Gear fan, this lifetime dream of controlling a Metal Gear, which has for decades been your enemy. Like, the the thing you've dedicated yourself to destroying across how many games, and now you are relying on it to save your life. Yeah. It's like, from a narrative perspective, a mechanical and presentational perspective, it's just this moment of, like, jaw-dropping catharsis and and <laughs> but also like heavy emotional weight yeah and it's just incredible yeah <laughs> and yeah. and and as as is popular in metal gear 
mechanically unique. Like, and that's what Metal Gear's always done well. Like, all of its boss fights always have a special wrinkle. But this is yeah. taking it to yeah, a new definitely. level because it's practically a different game. Like, this is like yeah. a, this is like a From Software giant developed like giant mech fighting game. Like, this isn't even Metal <laughs> Gear. Yeah. Because you are Metal Gear. <laughs> like, it, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And this is what Kojima does. Yeah, you know, this yeah. is why we love him. Yeah, those absolutely. of us who love him, this is why we love yeah. him. Yeah, just these these cinematic moments. All right, um, I've got a couple that um, were specifically requested by um, Ken, one of my patrons. Oh yes, um, I kind uh, I kind of want to save these for when we do specifically look at final bosses, but I do want to acknowledge that. That Ken mentioned them because they, they are they are want they are good bosses that I do want to talk about mm -hmm. um, at some point. One of them is Reka Kuze from the end of Project Zero Three, uh, and the other one is uh, Darth from the end of Blue Reflection. Uh, I've actually mentioned Darth before when we did our Goosebump Effect episode. Oh yeah, the, the the music in that sequence. So I just want to put a pin in those two for the moment because they're ones that I specifically want to explore in the context of. Um, sort of final boss encounters. So, but, but I did want to acknowledge them. Uh, the last one, uh, the last one I want to talk about today is actually another final boss. But because I've I've played and experienced it recently, I wanted to bring it up now, um, which is one of the final bosses of the story routes in Peach Beach Splash. Oh, so, cool! Um, each of the four um, story routes in Peach Beach Splash concludes with a mechanically unique boss fight. So, rather than fighting against uh, like smaller enemies or like the other characters uh, there will be some sort of giant boss to fight um and the one i particularly wanted to highlight was the one at the end of the Gessen route uh which it's actually two bosses um so mr k and miss r who are actually uh kiria and rin uh for people who are familiar with senran kagura so kiria is the hanzo guy's teacher and rin is the uh Hebejo group's teacher um, they are both sort of um, emceeing the Peach Beach Splash competition and they decide sort of as a grand finale to the competition they should sort of test the winning team skills in some way and so the way they decide to do this in the Gessen route is that they get into these giant mech suits and that have sort of surfboards on the feet and, and then just challenge the team of them to take them down basically um, and so what this, what this fight comes into is you, you fight one of them at a time and um it's a battle where you you can't damage the boss until you sort of knock them out of the air into a sort of weakened state uh but but you knock them into that weakened state by sort of doing things that would deal damage to them so uh, it's a combination of uh learning their various attack patterns avoiding those attack patterns keeping an eye on your teammates and making sure that they stay stay standing and if they don't stay standing finding a suitable opportunity to go in and rescue them uh, and then dealing damage whenever possible. So, like I talked a bit about earlier with the various mechanics in Peach Peach Splash, this becomes a nice combination of using your weapon, using your character's basic agility, and using those cards, and sort of having a suitable deck of cards available to actually deal with this confrontation. So, depending on how much you've leveled up your characters and your team, you might want to take along some more defensive cards with you to deal with these attacks, or you might want to take along some of the more offensive cards so that when the boss is in a weakened state, you can then just hurl everything you've got at them. Um, and so this this for me is a good example of a final boss that sort of tests your skills that you've learned throughout the rest of the game in a slightly mechanically different way to the rest of the game. 
So rather than just confronting you with a tough fight against a character, it is making use of the same mechanics in a slightly different context. And it works really well because it kind after a little while it sort of kind of takes on the almost the feeling of like um sort of a, a cooperative multiplayer raid boss almost mm. because although you're playing it in single player you are having to pay close attention to what your team is doing for a lot of the rest of the game you can almost get away with ignoring your team and either letting them get on with it or even letting them get defeated and then take out the rest of it yourself but in this case the bosses are so tough that you need to actually pay attention to the rest of your team make sure they all stay standing make sure that they're all doing their bit um and so in various ways this also highlights the importance of the game's other mechanics besides the immediate shooter gameplay stuff so um you can get through it without doing any upgrades to your cards and your characters and so on but it's much easier to get through and get a good grade on if you go back and you get some more cards and you level up your characters and you level up your weapons so they do more damage and so on so it's sort of a very practical example of the difference that those additional progression mechanics make to the game uh, without sort of explicitly saying, hey, you should probably go and upgrade your cards a bit now. It's it's something that sort of if you go and do that, you will you will see it. It's still beatable without that sort of thing, but it's quite difficult to do that. And so it's it's just a nicely designed boss fight that was a lot of fun to do. And so, so like you, you, you fight the first one of these and you defeat them and then you have to go and fight the other one uh, without sort of recovering any any of your life and lives that you might have lost in the first section no. as well so um so you have to you have to sort of gradually it will probably take you several attempts it took me several attempts to do not like sort of a, a frustrating amount or anything but it still took several attempts to do and sort of each time i was getting a little bit better at it i was getting a little bit better at observing these attack patterns and being able to dodge them and keeping my team up and running and so on so and you also sort of spot some mechanics that you might not notice throughout the rest of the game as well. So in Peach Beach Splash, there's, a me there's this mechanic called Soaking Wet Power-Up, uh, where, <laughs> the, the, yeah, where the, the, the more wet your character gets, if you, if you fill up this gauge of them being soaked, um, then they will, they will enter a temporarily powered-up state where you have infinite, infinite ammunition for a little while, you do more damage and all that sort of thing. And one thing you might not notice in context, because a lot of the battles in the game are so chaotic, is the fact that if you're sort of standing around with your teammates and there's nothing going on, they will often come up to you and they will just squirt water on you. And you'll, you'll think, why, why, why are they doing that? But sort of in the, in the kind of intermission between these two boss fights, because to get to the second boss fight, you have to run across to the other side of the stage. If you don't do that immediately, your team will all gather around you. They will all cover you in water and get you into this powered-up state to start the next second phase in. And so that's something you might not have come across up until that point in the game. And so you think, oh, okay, yeah, this is this is actually quite important. Maybe I should try and do this more often. And so, the, yeah, there's some, there's some nice little touches like that that really emphasize the kind of teamwork aspect, which, as we said earlier on, has always been a very key part of Senran Kagura's presentation and narrative and that sort of thing. People working together in their groups to sort of overcome a common enemy or a common challenge. And yeah, this this boss is a good example of that. And um, based on what I've seen of the other bosses so far, so I've only done the, the other Hanzo boss uh, so far as well, but that was mechanically very different as well. That one was more a sort of time-based thing where you had to defeat something before it got across the map. And presumably the Hebe Joe and the Crimson Squad bosses are going to be different again. But again, an example of making good use of teamwork, making use of the game's other mechanics, and sort of providing a slightly different twist on what you've been doing throughout the rest of the game. So that's good fun. Cool. 
Right, so that is a nice selection of boss fights that we've talked about today. Uh, this is something that we will almost certainly come back to at some point uh, because there are lots of bosses in games. Yeah. There's lots of cool final bosses. There's all sorts of interesting things we can talk about with this. So, um, but we have gone on for quite a long time at this point. Um, so we shall leave that there for now. So, as always, would you like to tell people where to find you online, Chris? Absolutely. You can always find my artwork at MrGilderPixels.com or on Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at MrGilderPixels. Fabulous. And you can find my written work at MoeGaming.net. If you're watching this podcast on YouTube, uh, stay tuned to my channel for my various other playthroughs and series. So on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, we have the Atari A to Z series, uh, where I look at Atari 8-bit ST2600 and Atari arcade games. Uh, on Wednesday, we have the Warriors Wednesday series, coming towards the end of Warriors Arachi now. Um, on Fridays, we have the Final Fantasy Marathon, where I'm playing through Final Fantasy 1 time of recording and other bits and pieces when i can be bothered and or find the time to do them so as always thanks for watching and or listening and we'll see you again next time Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>